You're listening to Research for Equity, a podcast series offered by the University of Global Health Equity, a transformative global health sciences university based in Rwanda. Research done right can be a powerful tool to improve the lives of millions of people around the world. Yet we still have a long way to go in addressing the vast inequities in healthcare and global health research we see today. Outdated models still endorse researchers and their findings from rich countries over those from the developing world. And yet there is a wealth of high-quality research from low-income countries that remains untapped and severely underfunded. We need research that addresses the contextual needs of vulnerable communities, influences action in policy and program development, empowers global fighters to advance discovery that benefits underserved populations, and moves us closer to an equitable world. This series meets some of the researchers driving forward this mission and presents a personal view on their work in addressing some of today's most pressing global challenges through an equity lens. Hi, my name is Gloria Idihozo, a UGHE Master's alumni, lecturer at UGHE, and today's Research for Equity episode host. This podcast is hosted by UGHE, an institution committed to addressing research inequities by promoting global health research to meet the needs of vulnerable communities and delivering innovative training for global health researchers and professionals to serve the underserved. Today's episode speaks to Dr. Yana Shura, One Health Assistant Professor, and Dr. Agazi Fitzum Gebreselassi, lecturer in UGHE Center for One Health, and explores podoconiosis, a highly preventable neglected tropical disease endemic to countries in Latin America, Africa, and Asia, affecting approximately 4 million people worldwide. Their research, far from the views of decision makers, examines education as a powerful tool to bridging the knowledge gap around podoconiosis, improving treatment and preventative advice, and ultimately the lives of those affected in Africa and beyond. It explores both the quality and quantity of training around this disease at medical schools, as well as the barriers to improvement. For those of you listening, we've added a link to their published paper beneath this episode with details of the other contributing authors. But for now, we'll dive straight into the episode. Um, Dr. Yana, Dr. Argazi, welcome to today's um, Research for Equity episode. Great. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, thanks, Gloria. Um, it's quite exciting to be in this podcast. All right. So I've had the pleasure of working with Dr. Gazi and Dr. Yana, and I'm excited that we get to talk to you um, today and to hear more about the research you're doing in the Center for One Health. So Diana and Agazi, your paper um, talks about podoconiosis, but I've just learned about the term recently. So as an expert in the field, Diana, would you mind giving our listeners a little more detail about what podoconiosis is and how it affects the body? Absolutely. So podoconiosis is also called mossy foot or non-filarial elephantiasis. And it's a type of elephantiasis that we find in, in certain countries in the world. It causes lymphedema, which is um, you know, severe swelling, and in this case, particularly swelling of the legs under the knees. It's caused when people have prolonged exposure to 
um, irritant minerals that are found in red clay soils. And so it's progressive. At the start, people might have light swelling. And if their exposure to soil continues, then the swelling will become progressively worse to the point where a person um, can barely walk and is unable to work. And so as you can imagine, this is devastating for a person and particularly for their family. When a person has such limited mobility, they're unable to work, there's huge stigma associated with this condition due to misconceptions about cause. People often have reduced marriage prospects, they're excluded from church and school and other social gatherings. And so it can be really terrible for the person involved. You can imagine that a person's legs become so swollen that they might not even be able to wear regular shoes anymore, which puts them at even higher risk of the disease progressing. But the good news is that this is a disease that's preventable and it's treatable, especially when it's diagnosed early. And that the management techniques are relatively low cost, especially when it is diagnosed at an early stage. Thank you, Yana, for that. So you mentioned that this is a preventable disease. Uh, would you mind giving us a brief overview of how people could actually prevent it? Sure. So maybe I'll turn that question over to Agazi. As a medical doctor, I think he's better placed to talk about these things. Thanks, Yana. In terms of prevention, as Yana mentioned, um, it's super easy and super low cost. Um, primary prevention is usually just wearing shoes. As Yana mentioned, the disease is caused due to um, contact with irritant soils. So if we can possibly have the afflicted communities wearing shoes, basically, it would be super easy to prevent the illness. Um, another way to prevent it is to make sure that um, you regularly wash your feet uh, with soap and clean water. And, you know, if some of these communities are able to uh, wash appropriately, then it could, it could easily be um, prevented as well. And as, as Yana mentioned as well, it is easily treatable if it's caught firsthand. And a lot of the treatment modalities are super simple and very easy to administer, especially with, you know, uh, institutions which have low funding and uh, limited resources as well. So those are kind of the major ways that uh, we can treat and prevent the illness. Thank you. So Agazi, if I may ask, um, who is most susceptible to the disease? And if it is preventable, uh, why are people still getting sick? Well, to describe those who are um, susceptible, you know, in the opening, we mentioned that um, almost 4 million people are affected. But globally, we have around about 33 countries in which the disease is thought to be endemic. And, you know, 19 of these countries are in Africa, which is, if you think about it, close to two thirds of those um, who bear the burden. So uh, many of the patients for this illness are located within the continent of Africa. And these happen to be uh, the poorest members and usually within rural communities, right? So they're the ones who are susceptible to the, to the illness. And more specifically um, from these communities, it's farmers most of the time who are more at risk because they're the ones who are likely to be out in the fields and engaging in uh, farming activities. And, you know, most of them are involved in traditional farming um, uh, activities like most of the continent. And during this time, most of them don't wear shoes. They're exposed to the soil over an extended period of time. And this uh, this really increases their risk. And further, you know, as, as I've mentioned in the prevention as well, a lot of these areas are underdeveloped um, and there's severe 
underinvestment in basic um, um, infrastructure such as wash. Um, so if we said a lot of these um, uh, illnesses can be prevented through washing, a lot of these areas don't actually have uh, access to clean and you know reliable running water, basically. So this even increases the susceptibility of the individuals. And uh, looping back to the to the issue of the shoes as well, one major issue is that most of these people can't afford shoes, right? So the, the very fact that you're poor and you're a subsistence farmer prevents you from from obtaining access to basic things like shoes. Uh, but also, some research has shown that even within communities which have relatively better prospects of obtaining shoes. Culturally, the individuals don't use shoes during farming um, because shoes are thought to be for other activities. Some papers have reported that when individuals actually do engage in in farming, um, they don't actually put on their shoes, right? So it's set aside. Um, It's not a major cause, but I think it's an interesting point to mention here. And finally, an important thing to mention when it comes to treatment and uh, you know why it hasn't been easy, um, there is a, a level of conflict and prioritization from from these governments and health bodies. You know the designation of uh, Dr. Yana mentioned that the disease is a neglected disease, but uh, within the NTD neglected disease umbrella as well, porokoniosis is I feel like even more neglected. So you know when it comes to governments and international health bodies prioritizing this illness, it's usually put to the back of the list. So uh, as we know, most African countries have limited resources. So the evil of that is you kind of have to prioritize where you put your money or energy in when it comes to the health of your populations. And most of these governments and institutions tend to focus on big illnesses who have, you know, more dramatic patient outcomes such as malaria, HIV, and, you know, the ones that most of us are aware of. So that's also a very important thing to consider as to why this disease has not been easily treated and prevented. And just to add, I think Dr. Agazi has done an excellent job of identifying those groups that are at high risk. And um, at UGHE, we have a strong focus on gender. And I, I wanted to add that there is a gender component to podoconiosis. Both males and females are equally susceptible to this condition from a biomedical standpoint. But because women in some of these environments have reduced decision-making behavior over money, for example, the barrier for them might be that they don't have control over family resources and so that they're not able to buy shoes or soap or access the things that they really need in order to prevent the disease. And then, of course, a consequence is that they have a far higher stigma associated with them, particularly if they develop the disease at a young age. And I'm particularly thinking about reduced marriage prospects here. Thank you both for that insightful information. I really had no idea that there was actually a gender component to podoconiosis, which I think most people were not aware of. So I'm very happy you brought that up. Um, So talking a bit more about your research, your research focuses on education or the gaps within it as one of the key factors perpetuating its prevalence across Africa and other countries where podoconiosis is endemic. So what does this knowledge gap mean for patients suffering from the disease? And what does advancement in this area look like? Um, Yana, if you wouldn't mind telling us more about that. Yeah, thanks very much for the question. So 
We know that within um, East Africa, and, and the evidence is particularly strong in Rwanda and Ethiopia, that healthcare professionals have large knowledge gaps in diagnosing and managing podoconiosis according to the recommendations. And this is a huge barrier for early diagnosis and early treatment, which, as we said, is really critical for making sure that this condition is reversed before it becomes so serious that more extensive medical interventions are needed. And so if we can train physicians and nurses and village health care workers to identify and properly diagnose this condition at an early stage and provide very inexpensive management techniques like shoes, socks, emollients, um, soap and water, then we can prevent a more more serious condition. So, you know, first of all is making sure that we have the best possible patient outcomes. The other thing is that podoconiosis is maybe a little bit unique in that there isn't a particular diagnostic test. So it's something that could easily be confused with lymphatic filariasis in an area where both are prevalent. Those are both two types of elephantiasis and they present in somewhat similar ways. So really diagnosing podoconiosis is, is about excluding other causes of elephantiasis like lymphatic filariasis or leprosy. And just an example from Rwanda, we have a, a very good research collaboration with a community-based group called Heart and Soul Africa based in Musanze, Rwanda. And I'll never forget a story that they told me about a woman um, who they worked with who had a very severe, um, probably stage four, stage five uh, podoconiosis. She was brought to the hospital and the surgeons immediately wanted to amputate both legs. And as you can imagine, that would have been devastating for her as an older woman living in a very rural, remote village with really limited access to all of the basic things that she needs to live her life. Being a W amputee would, would be a really terrible outcome for her. And so she refused the intervention. She went back to her community and by working with Heart and Soul Africa, which, which offers these basic interventions, including physiotherapy, wash, education, shoes and water, she was able to manage her condition to the point where she was able to return to her farm fields and provide for herself. So I think that is a short story that demonstrates the importance of really making sure that our healthcare providers understand how to manage these conditions. There are a lot of misconceptions about cause. In our survey, we heard that some of the physicians had heard stories about witchcraft and punishments from God, and that perpetuates stigmatization. And it also perpetuates the belief, even among healthcare professionals, that this uh, disease cannot be treated and so that you can essentially abandon these patients back to their communities. I guess the last part about education, and, and in this case, we're particularly talking about physicians, but physicians don't just play a big role in the clinics. They play a very important role in managing public health programs. And so if we have physicians who are maybe not quite as well-versed and, and really understand cause and management, it's going to be very difficult for them to design and implement health programs being delivered by nurses and community health workers that really get to the heart of podoconiosis and help those who are most vulnerable. 
So I think that's a little bit about why we think education is so important and, and why we decided to do this study. But if we think about how to improve um, the current situation, then we can look to some of our research results. And, and what we found was that some of the most important barriers to improving education and podoconiosis include poor faculty knowledge, people feeling like this would cost a lot, not having enough time in the curriculum. As we all know, <laughs> there's never enough time to educate physicians. Everybody has a competing agenda. And then, of course, exclusion from government or curriculum. So not all countries have podoconiosis included in the government medical curriculum. So I think based on this, we have a couple of recommendations. The first is that you can integrate podoconiosis into pre-existing courses. And this is what some of our respondents were already doing. So for example, when they're talking about lymphatic filariasis, which is the other cause of elephantiasis, they can also be talking about podoconiosis at the same time. That does not increase the cost or the time component. We can also be thinking about clinical rotations. So for those schools that, um, that were not teaching podo as part of the clinical rotations, they said, you know, the clinical component of medical school is really based on the epidemiology of the area. So it's who walks in the door of that medical clinic. That's, that's what the students get to learn the cases that they become most proficient in. And so as Dr. Agazi said, the majority of podoconiosis cases are in rural and remote areas. And so that's a strong argument for saying that medical students should be supported to do some of their clinical rotations in rural and remote areas so that they can connect with patients that are experiencing diseases um, that just are really rare in urban areas. And I think UGHE, a university and a medical school based in a rural um, area, also provides an example of, of why this is so important to educate physicians in, in rural Africa. I think another thing we can do is, is very simple by including it in government curricula, um, educating nurses and village health workers, so we know, um, especially through our respondents, some of them mentioned never seeing podoconiosis until they were in practice and moving to rural areas. But we know that the majority of care in rural and remote Africa is provided by village health care workers or community health care workers and, and sometimes even nurses. So including these health care workers in education is a really critical component, again, to early diagnosis. And then I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a moment, but I think including African medical students in podoconiosis research is just incredibly important. And we still do have a huge problem with a lot of the research opportunities being given to wealthier students from North America and Europe, where they come to Africa for maybe a six-week rotation, they do research with the money provided to them by their institutions, they leave the continent, they go home, they write a paper, but they are not personally invested in helping to solve this problem. And so we really need to change the way that medical schools are working um, internationally and collaborating to make sure that local students who will eventually become the local physicians 
really are engaged and educated in this issue. Thank you, Yana, for um, highlighting some of the important results of your research. Now, I have more of a curious question. You know, we are talking about the, the results, but I actually want to know more about the process you used to get those results. So, Agazi, if you wouldn't mind, um, can you give our listeners a little insight into the process you applied in assessing the gaps in polyoconiosis instruction in African medical institutions? And could you also talk a little bit about what specific barriers to data collection you experienced during this process? Um, yes, um, but before jumping into some of the methodology, I wanted to reiterate a point Dr. Yana raised about the the lack of knowledge amongst healthcare providers, and this is something I can personally attest to. Uh, I'm a trained physician, and having received my education in Ethiopia, which happens to be, you know, the country in in the continent which has the possibly the highest burden of protoconiosis. I wasn't really educated on the subject. Um, I had education um, concerning the other common causes of uh, lymphedema and elephantiasis, but you know, protoconiosis was completely something that was you know beyond my purview. So it was incredibly enlightening, even when I came to UGHE and we started dealing with this topic, and I was like super fascinated and baffled to an extent, you know, that that I hadn't. Uh, been properly educated and that I hadn't run into, you know, patients who had the case. So I think I, I could be a perfect example of uh, how the, the the there is an opening in the education when it comes to this specific illness. Uh, but moving on to the methods we employed for this research. And maybe I can jump in just for a second, because I absolutely agree. And I think Dr. Agazi is an excellent example of a, of a person who is locally trained and had an opportunity to participate in research and, and has become a huge champion for this issue. And one of the things we found in our study was that some of the universities were not including podoconiosis because they were relying on curriculum that had been provided to them by European and North American countries, which of course are not endemic for podoconiosis. Um, so this is another way that we can build capacity in a more positive way. If, if medical institutions are going to share their curriculum, they also need to support a process to make sure that it's updated according to the context of the area. And of course, I have no idea if that was the case for Agassiz Medical School, but it was something that came through in our study and, and something that really shocked all of us that a, a, an African medical school would be teaching a curriculum, um, you know, out of a European country, for example, and not be supported to update it. Thanks, Yana. Yeah, that's that's also a really important um, finding, the mismatch between the reality on the ground and, you know, the type of things that we're teaching um, the medical students. So uh, looping back again to the methods that we employed, mainly uh, with this research, we wanted to target um, specifically medical institutions within these uh, endemic countries. So uh, around 19 countries within sub-Saharan Africa. And the primary targets that we wanted to um, engage with were primarily there were deans, the deans of these medical institutions. Uh, however, you know, any faculty who had um, proper knowledge of the curricula was also a target. And uh, we used uh, an inclusion criteria for these institutions 
the first inclusion criteria was uh, official accreditation of these institutions. Uh, we wanted to make sure that institutions which had you know, recognition from the government uh, were included in the study. And another inclusion criteria we used was the availability of contact information for these institutions. And, uh, you know, based on those um, criteria, uh, initially we had identified around 190 um, institutions, uh, medical teaching institutions within these uh, countries. And using the inclusion criteria, we were able to whittle that list down to around 170. And for these institutions, we sent out uh, basically a survey that we had developed looking into the inclusion of protoconiosis and looking into the perceptions of, of, of our target uh, respondents towards the quality and quantity of the education that they were providing, as well as some of the barriers that, um, that were preventing them from providing protoconiosis education. And, uh, you know, it was a super fun process for our team because how do you find these institutions? How, and after that, you know, how do you find and talk to those people that you want? And during this uh, process, we, we faced a lot of challenges, you know, just coming up with the list of institutions. Um, first, when it came to accreditation of, of the institutions, with each country had its own, you know, national accreditation um, body, but it was really difficult to locate these institutions. They were really hard to find on uh, uh, online, basically. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it took us quite a bit of time. You jump into one accreditation body and you have hundreds and hundreds of universities that we had to basically sift through and see which ones taught medicine and which ones didn't, um, which <laughs> you might think is simple, but um, it wasn't. Uh, it's not really organized. You just have hundreds of universities on the list. And then afterward, you get a list of universities and it was very hard to find a web presence for, for a lot of these institutions. Many of them simply don't have um, an online address. So it was, it was pretty challenging and interesting. How do you find a university that doesn't really have a web presence in this day and age, especially when we search for everything online? Um, so that was also a very interesting challenge. And, uh, you know, uh, the third important challenge was contacts, right? Um, so even if you do identify an institution, who do you talk to in that institution? A lot of those institutions had emails that they um, that were actually like full. Um, you might not get a response. Um, they might be out of work, etc. We had a lot of challenges as well. And finally, uh, relating to the contacts as well, an, a strategy we used to... Um, contact the deans and the relevant faculty was we would normally email them after we obtained the email. But in Africa, uh, many, <laughs> many professionals, and it has been our experience in work as well, don't necessarily use their emails, right? So uh, you might email them and there'll be no response. So we uh, finally just ended up directly calling these, uh, these individuals. So you can imagine, you know, calling someone in Nigeria, calling someone in Ethiopia, um, and, you know, trying to get information uh, for this research. And uh, what we found was like a few funny moments. Some people just weren't happy being called, you know, and they were quite annoyed with us. So, you know, we had to find a way of like properly explaining the research and, you know, its potential impact for uh, for the future of, uh, you know, the education of uh, medical institutions, etc. So, those were some of the the barriers that we um, that we were uh, we faced during the the execution of the research. And you know, I'd like to say through a lot of hard work um, from our team, 
um, and more importantly, by utilizing um, the networks that we had, right? Um, individual networks, institutional networks, we were able to dig out and really find these, identify these institutions and also find the contact information for, for, these, uh, for the people that we wanted to talk to. Um, so that's kind of a snapshot of, of, of the method that we employed. Agazi, um, thank you for that. And um, the listeners might not know this, but I was one of the people who saw you guys come up with this project and I understand how frustrating it was. And I actually have to recognize that this is um, this research project on podokoniosis instruction is actually one of the multiple podo studies that you are developing in Rwanda right now. So, um, Dr. Yana, why is it critical that researchers like you and Agazi are going through such rigorous data collection around entities like podokoniosis? Um, and how do you or medical institutions intend to use the findings from this research to inform sustainable solutions for the future? Yeah, thanks, Gloria, for the question. And, and I, I also want to jump on Dr. Agazi's point at, at the hard work that was put into this project. And of course, it's not just the two of us that did the work for this project. We had a whole group of co-authors and, and one of the strengths to our groups is that they came from multiple different countries. We had co-authors from Angola, Ethiopia, Rwanda, the United States, and we had a wealth of languages that were also available to us, as well as an incredible network. And we were very lucky that the UGHE community also supported us with faculty reaching out to all of their contacts at various medical schools across the African continent. So we were really well supported. And I, I just want to acknowledge um, that this was really a team effort. But to get back to your question about, um, I guess, the importance of research it's important to recognize that historically, podoconiosis has been neglected in so many different ways, and particularly in the medical community, by not engaging in research. And so until very recently, we had very little information on, for example, you know, the clinical features, the epidemiology, the cause, the risk factors, and research is the foundation of any sort of intervention or campaign to improve the lives of those who are infected. If we don't know the details of what puts a person at risk and, and what medical interventions are best for their context, then we're really flying in the dark and, and we're not doing very much good. So um, our research really builds on the research of other groups, demonstrating that knowledge among healthcare providers was an important gap. Um, we really wanted to take that a step further and find out why is it a gap? Are medical schools providing sufficient, um, high-quality education in podoconiosis? And what we found was that only 43% of medical schools across 14 African countries were offering podoconiosis training. And for those providing it, it was only about two hours throughout the entire program. So you can imagine that is not a lot of time even to learn about a fairly simple disease like podoconiosis. And, and this was reflected by our respondents as well. Only about 25% of them felt that the quality was sufficient. Um, 
one of the huge advantages to this work is that our participants very directly told us what the barriers for improving education was. So they provided their own wealth of experience and expertise. And that's important because podoconiosis is neglected, as I said, in a variety of ways, including funding. And so we have very few resources and we want to make sure that we use those resources appropriately by targeting the interventions that we think will lead to the, the highest impact or the best outcome for healthcare providers and for especially the patients. We're very lucky right now in that the global community appears ready to tackle human suffering caused by neglected tropical diseases. The World Health Organization 2030 Roadmap specifically is geared towards reducing the disability-adjusted life years by people suffering from neglected tropical diseases by about 75%. Um, and there's a recognition that education and community engagement are really integral to achieving this goal. So at UGHE, our mission is to help those who are most vulnerable. They can be vulnerable for a variety of reasons, but Poverty seems to be, you know, the biggest reason, and that is something that is also very much in line um, with with those suffering from neglected tropical diseases. They're called the bottom billion for a reason. They're ignored um, by industry. They're ignored by medical professionals. They're often ignored by the research community as well. And so, our goal here at UGHG is to advocate for those who are ignored by other systems. Um, and we can do that by supporting improved medical curricula in a very tangible way. So one of the first things that Dr. Agassi did after completing this study with his teammates is he wrote a research grant in order to support education and, and very specifically to develop medical curricula that could be freely shared with those institutions that would like to include it but feel that they're not able to do it on their own right now. We can also advocate for inclusion in national curricula. So making sure that, that we facilitate some increased resources within those countries that aren't teaching it. And then lastly, and I think this is something we're really proud about um, in the Department for One Health, we can create systems for African NTD program managers to share knowledge and support each other um, without our help. So this, this speaks to creating sustainable systems. And I think um, probably Dr. Agazi, who's a program manager for this, um, for this grant, can speak a little bit more about how we are doing that. Yeah, um, thanks, Yana. Um, to, to, you know, build up on that, um, currently UGH is engaged in uh, setting up uh, communities of practice for um, NTD program managers across the African continent. And as Dr. Yana mentioned, this is a place where we want um, the people who are at the forefront of addressing this issue, you know, who are people from government responsible for uh, many of these NTDs, including ponocoriosis, uh, to form their own communities and have a sustained system in place where they can share experiences, work together, collaborate across borders, and really get to the heart of this issue, you know, in which uh, as as our research shows, um, education itself is also included. Um, but it really speaks to the systemic approach of UGHE, wherein we're trying to uh, allow 
those who are at the forefront of the fight to, you know, build up systems, uh, sustainable systems, uh, wherein, you know, actual work can be done and uh, really collaborative solutions can be brought to the front. And Agazi, I'd love to hear your perspective. You came to UGHE, which is um, unique in that it's a medical school and a master's program offered in a very rural location. What are your thoughts about that? Would you have wanted to go to a medical school in the middle of nowhere? (laughs) Um, I guess that's a tough question. after, you know, having seen how UJHE approaches medical education and, you know, uh, now that I understand that um, much of the medical education has to be geared towards the vulnerable, those who, who require our attention, you know, as Dr. Yana mentioned, um, for whatever reasons, I definitely would <laughs> would agree to study in a school like um, UJHE because you, you realize at the end of the day, much of the burden, much of the suffering um, of many of the diseases that we have come to know on this continent are actually felt by those, you know, who are in remote areas, who are poor and don't necessarily have the attention that they deserve. So count me in. (laughs) Thank you, Yana and Nagazi, for such an interesting and insightful discussion. I think I speak for myself and our listeners when I say that this topic of podoconiosis is unheard of to many people. And uh, you have been able to show us that it's a preventable disease. But the reason why it's been endemic in many countries across Africa is because one, lack of funding and because of lack of prioritization. But the most important part, which your research touches on, is uh, its exclusion in medical curricula and the need to actually revamp our curriculum to include topics that actually affect our communities instead of just uh, focusing on uh, curricula given by um, European medical schools and just taking that without really looking at how it affects our communities. I think we have come to the end of our podcast for today. Uh, I just want to thank you, uh, Dr. Yana, Dr. Agazi, for joining us today and for leading such an interesting and uh, enjoyable conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks, Gloria. This was awesome. Thank you, Dr. Gazi and Dr. Yana, for such an interesting and enjoyable conversation. I think our biggest takeaway for today is we're all recognizing the need for increased funding in the area of podoconiosis, especially podoconiosis instruction and making sure that in countries where podoconiosis is endemic, doctors and healthcare professionals are able to access the education and knowledge they need in order to address these cases. So I want to thank Dr. Yana and uh, Dr. Agazi for joining us for today and we look forward to having you for more conversations. <laughs>